This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today grew up in Merseyside. Her grandfather was a folk singer who wrote the song My Liverpool Home and ran a club. Her father was a railway man that campaigned for better working conditions, but it was her mother that sparked her interest in politics. Following a successful career as Labour councillor, she went on to win her seat for Rural South. My guest has led several senior posts for Labour, which began as Gordon Brown's parliamentary secretary. But she has yet to know what it's like to be in power. My guest today is the Shadow Minister for Work and Pensions. My guest today is the Shadow Minister of Work and Pensions, Alison McGovern. <laughs> so Alison, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for asking me. Now, we always start by asking the same question, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? Of course, you wouldn't have anything else to compare it to, but we ask it anyway. <laughs> so, a happy childhood. Well, um, it was insufficiently populated with Labour governments. That didn't make me happy, but, you know, it had a lot going for it. It was definitely populated with winning Liverpool football club teams, and that did make me happy. And so some good, some bad, I guess you'd say, if we were on match of the day. Some high, some lows. I'd take the positives. And I mentioned in the introduction that your grandfather was a famous folk singer. So was music something you're very aware of growing up or did you just think he was your grandfather and didn't really know what he did? No, no, I was very aware of it. Um, So In My Liverpool Home is an important song in kind of in Merseyside. It's actually sung on terraces in a very horrendous way by opposition fans at us. But it's, it's like a really important song there. And he was often performing. So some of my early childhood memories are like crawling round the back of a box at the Liverpool Philharmonic. And, you know, my mum and dad saying to me, your granddad's on stage, your granddad's on And like me sort of, you know, not really then knowing what was going on. But now I kind of look back and I was very lucky. He had musical instruments all around the house and, you know, used to sort of involve us and yeah music was a big part of my life growing up because of him did you play any instruments in particular so I learned to play the flute when I was growing up I can like pick out a few chords on a guitar I mean I I was never like talented in any way but I knew about music and how to be a part of it and I I think that really is a gift now We've had a few different politicians on this podcast over the years. I'm thinking of Therese Coffey, who grew up in Liverpool. (laughs) She did. And she would talk about how, you know, she felt quite conservative growing up and it wasn't necessarily the the politics of those around her. I wonder, did you feel Labour growing up and were you influenced by the area you were in? Um, Yes and yes. So my dad worked on the railways. Um, In fact, my granddad did too. He was also worked for British Rail and my great granddad had started his working life um, and continued on on the railways. And so rail strikes in the early 1980s were a big part of my early childhood. And I suppose I didn't, I didn't really know what things meant, but I knew that my dad went off to something called the union branch and I knew sort of what was on the news and things like that. So I definitely 
felt like that was a thing for me growing up. And as I got a bit older, you know, when I was 16, we had the Wirral South by-election of February 1997. So, like, Bebbington and Bromborough, where I grew up, was like... It was the mid-beds of its day, if you like. You know, everybody came. Newsnight was broadcast from, like, our little town. And, like, so it was a big deal. And, you know, I was, yeah, 16 in 1997. The idea of having a Labour government seemed, like, miraculous. It seemed like something that, you know, we desperately wanted to happen and had never happened. So I felt very political and I definitely knew which side I was on. Now, you went on to study philosophy, like me. All the best people. (laughs) Exactly, at university. Favourite philosopher? Um, (laughs) Well, then, David Hume. Now, I've actually discovered a lot more. I've read a lot more women philosophers more recently since I've left, especially. Because it tends to be quite male-heavy, the curriculum, doesn't it? So I can't remember a single book on the reading list by a woman. I remember reading Philippa Foote, on the doctrine of double effect. Now, I've read much more Martha Nussbaum. Um, There's a philosopher who was there when I was at UCL called Miranda Fricker, who is, I think, very thoughtful on women's testimony and why women are not believed, which I think is a much more important philosophical idea than was ever given credit for when I was at UCL. So I feel like we didn't read hardly any women, but now people going to study philosophy would read many more women. Should uh, we just do the whole podcast on philosophy, Katie? Yeah, Come on. We're just going to change it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Simone de Beauvoir, I think, was on my curriculum, but like, I think that was about as far as it got. Right. I can't I don't, think of I don't think, I don't think, I don't remember reading Simone no. de Beauvoir even, although, like, have subsequently. Well, so that was an add on module, so it wasn't Right. Cool. There you go. Cool. You see, that I would definitely <laughs> say, like, the vibe was very much like we read the men and, like, the women are maybe a bit of an afterthought. I mean, all of the people who taught me were great, but that was just the culture then. And when you decided to do that philosophy degree, did you have a sense early on that you wanted to have a career in politics, given you felt as though you were Labour growing up? When I did it, I kind of did it thinking I would go to a journalism career, because most people don't choose to study philosophy thinking, this is going to get me a really good job specific to my subject area. No, in fact, I remember being in the first year at UCL, and we had this session on careers, which was basically like the, the lecturers like joking about how nobody's here for a career. What are you doing? And there was a, a booklet about careers for people with philosophy degrees. It was basically making the point that like people go on to do a whole number of things. None of them are do, to do with your degree, which was kind of funny at the time. But yeah, my reasons for going and studying philosophy were because like I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Like I really just was engrossed in it. I thought that maybe I might work for a politician. I didn't think it would be possible for me to be a politician at that point. And then on graduating, what did you decide to do? Um... So whilst I was at university, actually, I had been in touch with my then Member of Parliament from home and had got some work experience in Westminster. And that kind of changed the way I saw it because my job was to pick up the phone. I used to answer phone calls from constituents and I realised that, like, politics was... Just everything, just anything that people were worried about and were thinking about was important to them. And I thought, oh, right, OK, because student politics seemed to be something different. And I wasn't interested in student politics. But then when I was in his office working out what real politics was, it seemed very engaging. And so it was at that point that I thought, OK, maybe I, I can work in politics, which I, I did for a couple of years and then went on to be a local councillor because... I thought, right, well, it's just, it's whatever people need, that's what politics is. And then from being a local councillor, and I suppose being the person who 
is out there speaking for those you're looking after, did that make you think, actually, it's not that much of a jump to then think about being an MP in Parliament? Yeah, and I was involved with Labour Women's Network, who I'm sure other people have mentioned, very important organisation who offer training and help and support for people who, you know, might want to be a politician. And, you know, I was really engrossed in being a councillor and I became deputy leader of the Labour Group and that was my plan. And then my predecessor decided to retire. And so it was kind of a couple of things really fell into place. It wasn't a plan, but I kind of knew once I was in elected politics that I didn't hate it put it that way. And you're pretty young at that point, right? Right. So I was elected to the council when I was 25 and I stood to be a parliamentarian when I was 29. Yeah. So did you worry about becoming an MP so young? Just in the sense, it's obviously nothing compared to some of them in the sense we have young Keir, who is the new baby of the house after winning in a by-election for Labour. But I still think being an MP in your 20s or, you know, entering your early 30s is, is a bit different, right? Yeah. I can't say that I worried about it in the sense of, I thought when I was standing to be the Member of Parliament for Rural South in the 2010 election that I would lose. So I mainly worried about how to lose well in a way that meant that maybe I might win in the future. And then when I was first elected, you know, there was a lot on and so I mainly worried about other things. But I've looked back on it and I think that there's nothing wrong with young Members of Parliament. We should It takes all sorts. But I do think that... You know, on, on a personal level, I think it was an extremely high learning curve. Now, you entered Parliament in 2010. I did. There's also the time that Labour go out of power. Yes. So not exactly what you were hoping for. No, and, like, it was a moment of, like, seeing all of these people who'd been in the Cabinet then kind of, like, walking round the division lobby, remembering how to, like, you know, make their own appointments and their own diaries and things... So it was quite a time. It wasn't what I was hoping for in many ways in that I did win unexpectedly, but lots of friends who were standing did not win. And it was a very tense and difficult time. But yeah, we didn't lose as badly as some people thought we were going to. I mean, on reflection, I think that's that's something that I note, you know, that I think of. Like, actually, I think people thought we were going to lose even worse than we did. Yeah, and I suppose bigger losses tend to lead to more knee-jerk reactions within a party, so there is something for that, if you think about some of the debates right now about the scale of loss and what it means for the Tories. Um, You were also Parliamentary Private Secretary to Gordon Brown. What was that like? Amazing. So very, very difficult time, but I'd met him once as a parliamentary candidate and I also had a sort of connection in that Kirsty McNeil and I were councillors together in Southwark and she worked in Number 10 and... That, I think, is how it happened. But I just got a phone call from him saying, would I undertake that role? That, you know, it it was a convention that former prime ministers had a PPS. And in reality, it was an apprenticeship. He was trying to help. And he really did help. He taught me lots of things. He was an incredible sounding board. Somebody who has been a massive support. And, you know, to this day, I just... I'm so grateful for his support. I think there's often a perception from people who don't know him particularly well. He seems quite like a stern character. And, you know, I think if you think of some of the, I suppose, interviews over the years, there can be this sense that 
Gordon Brown as someone who's, you know, grumpy's probably the wrong word, but he doesn't have the the rosy demeanour of some politicians. But do you think that's wrong? And did you see a softer side of him working closely with him? So I have always been lucky to have shared interests with Gordon, not least the football. So when you're like walking around the Commons or Westminster or whatever with Gordon, people sort of say he, he doesn't do small talk or whatever. I mean, maybe he's like a really serious person who is incredibly knowledgeable. But also, like, I've always found, like, he would know, or, like, you know, there's such and such, you know, they support Plymouth Argyle, they, you know, lost at the weekend. Like, he would just know about stuff that people cared about. And maybe other people just, I don't know, haven't engaged with him in that way. Because I always found him, like, really easy to get along with. Yes, he, I don't know what, what the right way of putting it is, but like, he is a serious person who, you know, when I was first elected, youth unemployment had, you know, really spiked post global crash. It's what always happens. You know, people at the beginning of their working life tend to be the ones who pay the price. And so I was really like digging through all of the numbers and trying to understand it. And of course, like, he knew so much. And so we used to spend like quite a long time talking about all of that. And I guess for some people, that's not their idea of fun. But to me, that's a worthwhile thing to do. And so I've, I really benefited from that. As we mentioned, you enter the period where Labour is in opposition, which means you get to lots of shadow briefs. Um, so I think one of the things is we see lots of, um, I suppose, you know, that's the case now when the Tories won that 80 seat majority. A lot of uh, Tory MPs think the best they can get is, you know, glorified bag carrier. But I suppose lots of opportunities on the shadow benches in a way different. What, from opposition? Yeah. Uh, you had lots of different briefs, right? Yeah, I have done various different jobs. I guess there was a whole period where I wasn't on the front bench. Yeah. And that is another story. <laughs> I remember actually lots of people becoming shadow front benches and I was Gordon's PPS. And I sort of like stayed doing that for a while because actually... That was a really, really worthwhile thing to do. And some of the projects that he was working on were incredible. We, you know, did a lot with Amartya Sen, for example, uh, to go back to philosophers. But then I was asked to um, cover Shadow International Development. And that was just a thing that I could never say no to because that is such an important bit of politics for me. And so I did that for a while. And then just right before the... um, 2015 election actually I was asked to do shadow childcare which is a whole nother story so I guess I have done a few different roles but it's all I've always wanted to do the economics side of things so actually that's sort of like broadly what has underpinned all of them apart from a period doing shadow sport and culture which is very economic actually I would say but was also you know a period of should we say fun (laughs) Yeah, a combination. Although um, it was COVID. So, like, actually... It so, was actually, like, didn't get all the tickets, It was really. like, no, it was like being shadow minister for the things we can't do at the moment, which is <laughs> less fun than it might have been. Um, you mentioned just then passing a period where there were fewer jobs to no jobs. And, of course, Ed Miliband took over from Gordon Brown. Then you had a situation with Jeremy Corbyn. How did you find that period? Really, really difficult. Really difficult. You know, I always knew my opinion. You know, I supported Liz Kendall in the... Yeah, the 4.5% Liz Kendall. Yep. Yep. You know, we could do a whole podcast just about that. So let's not. Um, (laughs) But I suppose when you support it, I guess that's quite interesting in the sense, I only mentioned the percentage because Liz Kendall, obviously, after we're talking about 
the point you made about how in 2010 it was a less bad defeat than someone expected. Yeah. Obviously, in 2015, the problem was so many people in Labour thought they were going to win. Yeah. And then when Emily Band fell short, you had this battle for the soul. And yeah, a, you have a yeah. reaction. Yeah, exactly. And, and Liz Kendall was speaking perhaps some hard truths to the party, but the party was not in a place to hear them. So at what point, I suppose, backing Liz Kendall, do you start to realise this isn't going to fly? Oh, well, we knew from the point at which there was a poll. But... I guess the one thing that I learned during that period is what I think and understanding, you know, that I think some things about fiscal responsibility matched with progressive politics, you know, and how important that is. So I learned a lot about myself. I think that that period was really, really difficult, but actually I always, like remembered what Jeremy Corbyn said in that leadership election, which was leadership was never just about him. It was about all of us and putting forward what we thought and our arguments. And whilst I didn't agree with him on very much, I agreed with him about that. So I just tried to do that to the best of my ability. And you're in a WhatsApp group called the Birthday Club, whoever's birthday it may have been. <laughs> and there were lots of birthdays. <laughs> lots of birthdays. And in that group, you had some of your colleagues, I think I think it was a group that probably people find it a bit of a safe space to sometimes talk about some of the frustrations with the Corbyn era. But some of the members of it went off to make Change UK, that break-off group. Did you ever think about leaving the Labour Party? No, no. I understood what people were going through. But to me, the Labour Party was never just a group of politicians in Westminster. The Labour Party is a much bigger thing than that. We came out of the idea that trade unions, socialist societies and other people, they didn't just want to change policy, they wanted to change whose hand was on the tiller. They wanted to change the idea of who could be in power in this country. And the Labour Party, as I say, is not just about a group of people who share policy ideas. It's a route to power for people who otherwise will get left out. And even despite all of the challenges and how difficult it was, I believe in that idea. That is what the Labour Party is for. And, you know, the Labour Party's had lots of different leaders and I have thoughts about them. But the most important thing is that idea that you provide a route to power for ordinary working people in this country. And the Corbyn era comes to an end, not through the 2017 this is like, election. This is your life. I know. We rattled, well, we'll do the separate podcast all about philosophy and the yeah, seven all about the Liz Kendall campaign okay. and the future episodes. But the Corbyn period comes to an end after the 2019 election, another loss there. And in the leadership contest that followed, you originally backed Jess Phillips. Yep. And Jess Phillips did not win, Keir Starmer did. What drew you to Jess Phillips over the other candidates? I like supporting women. I mean, you know, we've had lots of fantastic leaders of the Labour Party. I always want to be supporting women. Jess is somebody who I think puts forward really strong progressive arguments and she's doing that from the front bench. And she's somebody who, you know, that idea that like ordinary working class people are good enough to run the country. I think Jess is somebody who people think she's just like, you know, she's a big character and all of that. You get her on justice issues, on actually, you know, things like prisons and all of those like deep ingrained issues that 
it really takes somebody who's dedicated to know about and understand how reform could really change our country. Jess is somebody who I think who has a lot to offer. And obviously now it's Keir Starmer's Labour Party and the party is very far ahead in the polls. Having obviously only ever been in Parliament and Labour's not in power, what's it like feeling as though you're so close to it? <laughs> but there's been obviously in the Labour Party many false dawns. I suppose you're starting to think about what you would do, particularly from your shadow brief in government, but you don't want to be presumptuous at the same time. And I was a councillor in opposition too. And after I stood for Parliament and went into the opposition, my colleagues in Southwark Labour Group went on to run the council and I never got to understand and to learn the lessons of that. And to, So it hasn't just been 13 and a half years for me. It's been 17 and a half years. So I lie awake at night worrying that my ideas won't be heard by civil servants or that that there are practical problems that I haven't thought through. And I think that's really natural when you've spent so long trying to think about the ways in which you would want to shape policy and pursue a better economy if you could and never had the opportunity and trying to. So, yeah, that is... You've really put your finger on my worries there, Katie. (laughs) You've really identified them, yeah. You're not alone in being one of many Labour front benches who have not got experience of being in government. Quite a few. Have you been one of the figures to get some of these lessons from the Labour old guard or pep talks about what it's like? I mean, I as, suppose as you've got, got Gordon I've on got speed Gordon, down, right? So, right. So, and actually, that's one of the amazing things about Gordon is that, you know, all the way through, I've always talked to him about ideas precisely for that reason. And many others. I mean, Harriet was my MP when I lived in Camberwell and... You know, she similarly is really amazingly kind of open and blunt and incredibly supportive. But yeah, the um, those who've been in government, I think, understand how important that experience is. Do you know how rare it is in this country to have, you know, an actual human person who's been a Labour minister? So I feel like we ought to use all of their experience. Because you have been an MP for quite a long time and we've seen obviously young MPs enter, but also probably more on the Tory side at the moment, partly because of the polls. But, you know, we are increasingly seeing younger MPs quit the Commons. Do you think it's got more stressful in the time, you know, since 2010 to be an MP? Is it things like social media? Is it things like that? Or actually, do you think it's pretty much the same? I mean, I'm a really bad subjective judge on that because... Have have your pressure levels stayed the same 2010 onwards? I think that I've learned, (laughs) or I hope I've learned, touch wood, I mean, there's me being, you know, irrational, but, like, I hope I've learned to deal with the stresses and the pressures in a better way. Whether it's objectively got more or less stressful, I honestly couldn't tell you. I think that I would wish that we could have politics that feels connected to people's life and therefore the kind of hullabaloo and the circus element of politics might be dialed down a bit. I mean, you you as a journalist might be better able to, to tell me how to do that because cause sometimes it feels like... I don't blame anyone for turning the news on and seeing the politics and thinking, what's that got to do with me? You know, how does what they're talking about there help me afford the shopping when food prices were spiking as they were last summer, you know, 20% increases in food prices. I wish we could get politics to be really focused on what life is like for people in Britain. And 
that should be what we're stressed about. That. Because that's why it's important. Not, you know, who's in and who's out. And obviously there's a politics to this, right? I feel like so much of my life in politics has been caught up in a sort of Tory drama that's irrelevant to many of my constituents. Preach. <laughs> so, so I wish we could be focused on the things that cause most people in this country stress. And then however stressful it is, it would be important. Whereas too often we're just captured by nonsense. On that subject of you know, issues people care a lot about, I mean, right now we're speaking while there's a situation going on in Israel-Palestine. Yeah. And a big debate within the Labour Party. I think about a third of Labour MPs have said they would like there to be a ceasefire. And um, Keir Starmer holding quite firm. Is that something that you feel particularly personally in terms of do you feel as in Keir Starmer's made the right decision there? Um, I think it's a very difficult situation. You know, obviously I support Keir and I think everybody at the moment is looking at the news with absolute horror. Our stress and our distress is of nothing in comparison to what people there are facing and you can often feel powerless and so I think with constituents I just try to focus on the very small number of things that we can do to try to help in any possible way that we can and also keep our community in Britain strong. And the final question we ask in this podcast is when we ask everyone which is what is the worst advice I've ever been received and we've had a real mix over the years. <laughs> sometimes it's bad advice they've taken and regretted later, sometimes it's bad advice they've ignored. I was listening back because of recent events to the Suella Bravman podcast we did and she listed basically everything she'd been told not to do and I think she can now add some things to that <laughs> from you know don't quit government, don't resign over lists, uh, you know, don't do that. And she said that actually it all worked out very well for her. But I wondered, wow. you know, what, what is yours? <laughs> um, so I got some, I mean, I would say that like people are so quick to give women politicians advice in general. In the early days, I got a lot of advice on what to wear that I hope is not repeated now to women getting into politics because I think you definitely become sort of very self-conscious and like that's so weird because men in politics they just have this uniform obviously and then you become like obsessed about meeting a kind of standard that you can't as a woman you're different we should embrace that I also like in 2010 a lot of people gave me the right advice which was not to stand because we were going to lose and in Wirral South because I was going to lose. And I think that probably was the right advice. But for good or ill, you know, it was advice I ignored. And that's just what happens. But I would say the best advice is Harriet Harman's advice, right, which she gives... Well, she certainly gave my generation of women and I'm pretty sure she gives all women who get into the House of Commons, which is blaze a trail. That previous generations did it their way, that women in politics have to do it their own way and just blaze a trail. And I think you try to make an impact and make a difference. And it won't always go right. Of course it won't. But you just try and make a difference and spell out the way in which you think the country can be that will be better for people. And that's the point of politics. And with that, thank you for coming on the podcast today. <laughs>